I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we're all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. All right, folks, grab your Bibles. We are still in our series in Philippians, Reasons for Joy. And uh, here, here's what's coming up as we get through December. Obviously, we cross the threshold of, of Thanksgiving, and, and all of us look forward to the holidays. We typically do Advent as we get to December, uh, celebrating the coming of Jesus and the anticipation of him coming again. This year, we're going to stay right here in Philippians. And It'll be a little challenging, uh, but I think chapter four lends to some, um, some tough topics, actually, um, to get us through the holidays. I don't know if that, those two go to, go to well. We're going to be challenged by what Philippians 4 says to us as a text, but I think it lends to the right attitude that we're supposed to have. Again, this attitude of joy and uh, you know, being content and, uh, and of, of giving God thanks regardless of our particular context or circumstance. So that's how we're going to do Christmas, and, uh, and I, I think we'll all be blessed by it. So we've been in Philippians, and um, Paul wrote this letter particularly to thank a church in Philippi that he had founded. This is 10 years later that he's writing, and he's thanking them uh, for their friendship. He's thanking them for their prayers. He's thanking them for their monetary support that they've given him for the last 10 years. And, uh, and so this is a, kind of a, a friendly letter. And one of the things that we see in this, in this book is Paul doesn't talk a lot about things that they're doing wrong. He doesn't mention a lot of theological things or practical living kinds of things that the Philippian church is doing wrong. But that doesn't mean there aren't points of tension. And we've seen a few of those already. Think back to several weeks ago in the first chapter, Paul talked about some were preaching Christ out of rivalry or envy. And later in chapter one, he says there are people who that the Philippian church should not be intimidated by as they oppose the gospel. In chapter three, Paul talks about people who uh, were, were legalists. They, he, he said they were pushing circumcision of the flesh. And of course, later he, he calls these same people um, dogs and enemies of the cross. Um, and so Philippians, although it's a, a friendly letter, it's not without a little bit of tension. And we're going to actually see a little bit more of that tension in our text today. So we're in chapter four. We're going to look at three verses, chapters four, verses one through three. If you don't have a Bible, there's one down the center column of seats. You can grab it and look around page 680 or so, I think. You'll find Philippians. If not, just look in the table of contents at the beginning. Let's read these together. Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. Let's read together. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, 
Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for so many things, for uh, a beautiful day in Northern Virginia, for um, the sun coming up, which reminds us of your new mercies for us today. Thank you for Jesus, him dying on the cross in our place for our sin. We thank you for uh, the church that he's created, the the picture of you in the world and, and the means by which you advance your kingdom. And as we gather as the church today, Lord, uh, we we don't take this privilege lightly. We thank you that we have the opportunity to come together. And as we do, Lord, we invite your presence here with us to teach us, to train us in righteousness. Lord God, to remind us of the gospel, to... Um, to draw us closer to Jesus. And it's that for that reason that we gather, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. And so here's what's unique about Philippians. This is the only book that Paul doesn't, you know, like he doesn't chastise or, um, or get at this church because they have systemic errors going on in their congregation. And so the, the, the verses that we read today are the harshest that Paul will get toward them. It's the closest thing that we have of any kind of rebuke in, in the whole book. Uh, these verses here um, remind us very, very simply that it doesn't matter how good your church is, there's always an opportunity for tension and conflict to, to come about. Why is that? Because there's people here. Anytime you have people, there's the, that's the opportunity for those people um, to be in conflict with each other. And we see that in these verses here. Uh, it's not, um, and of course, when you have people, it's not if you're going to have conflict. Really, it's, it's when. And so we'll see um, play out in these verses, because there's conflict here, an opportunity for forgiveness and for reconciliation. So today, today we're going to talk about forgiveness, but not just forgiveness. We're actually going to talk about leadership and what leaders do in regards to forgiveness, because this text is about leaders helping others to, to walk through the process of forgiveness and reconciliation so that the church can stay on mission and not, get, uh, not be strayed away from what God has called it to do. And so in our text, just jumping into uh, verse 2 and 3, um, Paul mentions four church members. These are just regular people like, like you and I standing here today. But actually what's special about them is we don't know how, but they've become leaders in this Philippian church. And I mean, the, the names are kind of crazy, right? So we got this baby boom going on in our church, Euodia, Syntyche, some I, I don't know if it's Syntyche or Syntyche, but ladies, if you have a girl and you're looking for a unique name... There it is. Euodia and Syntyche, those of us who are Christians will know that you have named your baby a, a, a Christian name. Actually, these are, uh, these are probably, they're either Jews or Greeks because they're in Philippi. Euodia, it means, uh, it means success. And uh, Syntyche, her name means lucky. I don't know if she's too lucky here because Paul is actually rebuking, rebuking them in a sense. And so that was for free. And so Paul is 
is talking about these leaders, he's, and actually he mentions others who aren't mentioned by name in verse 3 uh, who have become leaders, and he calls them fellow workers. And so there's a few people here that Paul is actually directing his comments to, but particularly to Euodia and Syntyche. And he's mentioning these people because they're leaders. And there's no secret of how a person becomes a leader in any organization. A person that becomes a leader is someone that identifies with the mission and vision, perhaps the values of a particular organization. They, they step up and say, hey, I, I think I have gifts or teaching or tools or schooling that might lend to me uh, being involved in what's going on taking on responsibility and helping other people to meet the vision and values and mission of this organization. And so as you're thinking about the people that, that Paul is naming, that's what he's talking about them in regards. They have somehow become leaders in this church, and he's orienting his thoughts, his comments, and, and really his rebuke towards them. Uh, leaders become leaders because people become leaders, rather, because they participate in the life of the church. That's what leaders do. And so uh, these leaders here, we don't know exactly what they were doing, but they were very likely participating and giving uh, to the life of this church. And I say that particularly in this day, in this age, because leaders are hard to find. I mean, in any organization that you uh, might be a part of, leaders are hard to find. It's hard to find people who would just stand up and say, hey, you know what, I'll do it. I, I, will, I, will, I will help move us along down the road, because most of us, a lot of times, we just want to be consumers and take. I mean, we, just want, we just want people to, to serve us. There's a difference between a leader that gives and participates and a non-leader or someone who consumes and takes. And of course, this is, the, I mean, this is like prime consumer season, isn't it? We just celebrated Thanksgiving and on the heels of, I mean, couldn't even get through it Thanksgiving Day and you got Black Friday stuff happening. And Black Friday is that, that, you know, that whole weekend of events where I'm looking for a deal, right? I want the best bang for my buck. That's what consumers do, right? I've, I've, got, I've got some things I want to get. I've got a budget and I'm going to go look whether online or at the mall or some specialty store to find um, the best deal with the little bit of money that I have. That's what we should do. And here's the thing. I think consumerism is good. Consumerism is good if you're looking for a car. Consumerism is good if you're looking for a, a nice purse, ladies, right? Okay. You want an expensive purse? Y'all don't want an expensive purse? That's what my wife says, all right? And this, this, this one is like, it's like tearing up. I need a new one. We definitely want to be consumers when we're looking for a house. But here's the thing. You don't want to be a consumer when it, when it involves the church. Because that, that's kind of disgraceful. Because if we bring the consumer attitude of, I want the best bang for my buck in the church, that means you're going to be looking for, you're going to be looking to be served. You're going to look to take rather than to, to give, to give of yourself. And that would be the wrong perspective to have in the church. And I don't know if you've ever saw it this way, but leadership and consumerism, don't, don't, they don't go together. You can't be a consumer and also be a leader at the same time. Those two ideas are mutually exclusive. The other th idea is God calls us to be leaders. There's firstly the gift of spiritual leadership. There's some people that are uniquely wired, uniquely gifted to to, to do stuff that lends 
to leadership. But the way the Bible sees it is that everybody in this room, everybody that's, I mean, everybody that's a Christian is called to be a leader. It's almost like being in the military. Everybody in the military is, is training for the next rank up, from, from private to general. It's the same thing in the body of Christ. As a disciple of Jesus, all of us are training, learning to serve, love, and follow Jesus more. And oh, by the way, we're doing that not just for our own good. We're doing it so that other people would follow him as well. And so consumerism and leadership don't go together. They're mutually exclusive because consumers talk about problems. Leaders solve problems. And that's what, Pete, that's what Paul is, is getting at with these particular leaders here. Leaders solve problems. That's what leaders do. So look at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We looked at this verse last week, so I'm only going to be here for a couple of minutes, but I want to look at it from a different lens than what we looked at it last week. Uh, Verse 1 is a uh, transition verse. Paul is firstly looking back. Obviously, you see, therefore, you got to look back to see why that word is therefore. And why is it therefore? Paul is saying, based upon all the things that I've said in chapter 3, what were they? Basically, verse 20 and 21, where he says that you're a Christian. More more specifically, you're a citizen of heaven. And so in verse 1, he says, stand firm. Stand firm. And, and stand firm. Don't be immovable. Don't be immovable in terms of following the right kind of leaders, a leader that's going to um, push you towards being like Jesus Stand firm against those who would, uh, be, who would call themselves enemies of the cross. Stand firm because you know that although your, feet, your foot is here on earth, you've got a future that aligns you with the, the very um, throne of heaven. And so he's looking back in that sense. But this verse, because it's transitory, is also looking forward as well. So Paul is saying, therefore, because you're a Christian, because you're a citizen of heaven, because you will literally enjoy God forever, he's saying, particularly to Yodia and Syntyche, settle your conflicts. And and what Paul is doing, theologians use this grammatical uh, term called... um, applying the gospel, really, but it's the imperative comes, uh, the, the indicative comes before the imperative. You guys remember English class? You know, uh, <laughs> I don't either. All right. All right. So Paul is using a technique that he, that's laced in all of his letters. He's giving us an indicative. This is what, this is the, this is the, the larger truth. This is what you should espouse to be. This is who you are before he tells us what to do. And he does that particularly here. And and he's reminding us of what's true before he tells us what to do. I like that. Paul is, he's applying the gospel. He's taking the truths of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and applying it to this particular situation with these two women. That's what leaders do. A leader should help people focus not on just the, the this, is, this is the current situation, but help them to see the bigger picture. And I think Paul is doing that for these two ladies. And so let me give you an example. Paul says, you're citizens, you're citizens of heaven. That's an indicative. What's the imperative? Stop acting like citizens of this world. Here's an here's a indicative. You've been reconciled with God. Here's the imperative. Would you reconcile with each other? Here's another indicative. You've been forgiven by God. Here's the imperative. Would you please forgive each other? 
So what do leaders do? Leaders focus on the, the, the bigger aspect that we should be operating under. Leaders apply the gospel. Here's the second thing leaders do. Leaders affirm their love. Verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Paul is trying to influence this culture um, with an atmosphere of brotherhood, sisterhood, love, and affirmation. He's trying to inject these into the culture. Perhaps they might already be there. He's just emphasizing them. And for those of you who've led anything, you know that one of the most important things about an organization is the culture, right? A culture can make or break the organization um, doing whatever its mission is that they're supposed to be doing. And if the, if the culture isn't right, I mean, a lot of things aren't going to be right. What happens when uh, a leader, a, a CEO, a founder comes in and just some stuff is going wrong in the company? A lot of times they'll, they'll invite some um, consultant, some guru that can sort these things out to, to get an outsider's perspective. They'll come in and they'll tell him what's wrong and then they'll give him some things that he needs to do to fix it. And I think that's, this is kind of what Paul is doing here. He's He's looking at what's going on, and he's coming in, not as a consultant, but really as their brother and saying, you know what? You guys need a little brotherhood, sisterhood. You need a little love and affirmation. Uniquely, this is what Paul says. He says, you're my crown. Um, and that's an interesting word for him to use. But he's, again, he's, he's talking identity talk. This is, uh, he's applying the gospel. He's given them indicative before he tells them what to do, imperative. He's calling them royalty. He's calling them kings and queens. He says, I love you not for just who you are, but I love you for what God is making you to be. And I think that's one of the best ways to deal with a culture, to see what it is and, and try to influence it with your presence, to influence it with your words. And in this particular case, Paul is trying to inject in this culture love and affirmation. Why? Because they're in conflict and they need a little bit of that. Think about your holidays. Perhaps you were with your family. Perhaps your family's in the room right now, and you might have had a little conflict, a little tension, something that's been lying there for days, weeks, months, years. A lot of times when there's conflict present in a relationship, uh, it just makes, it makes everything stiff, doesn't it? And a lot of times we won't enter into the conflict because it's too risky when there's no love and affirmation in the relationship. But you inject in brotherhood, sisterhood, love and affirmation, what happens? Even though I've got a conflict that I need to enter, I feel safe. I feel safe that I can bring up a hard word, that I can say a contentious thing, that I can say something that even might hurt or pierce, but because the atmosphere is love and affirmation, and encouragement, the person can walk away and not feel pained by what you said, but, be, but feel reproved, corrected maybe even a little bit, and definitely challenged, but they know that they've been dealt with rightly. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's affirming, he's loving, and here's why he's doing that, because he's getting ready to give some very direct words to Euodia and Syntyche. That's what leaders do. Leaders also call out the best in those they lead. In verse 2, there's a word, a word repeated twice. Show me verse 2. You see that word? What is, if you see it, yell it out. Entreat. That's the Greek word parakaleo. Uh, interesting word. It means come alongside. 
Um, it's the same word used of the Holy Spirit's role in your life. The Holy Spirit comes alongside you. He doesn't push you. He doesn't prod you. He comes alongside you um, to make, make you aware of Jesus, to change your heart ever so slightly so that you're inclined to him. And so Paul uses this word here as he's talking about his action towards Euodia and Syntyche. And the sense is, Paul is saying, you know what, I'm not going to push you from the back and like, force you to do it, but I'm, I'm also not going to stand in front of you and just yell at you and, and, and degrade you. He's saying, I'm going to come alongside to help you work this out. And I think that's a good approach that we need to take as leaders when we're trying to dissolve conflict. Um, we can influence, we can have an influence on some people from afar, but we really don't impact people until we're up close and personal. I think that's true. When you're up close and personal, um, people, people know you care. Someone said this, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Those are true words. When someone knows that you care, they'll know that you, you feel like you have buy-in, and they can listen to what you have to say, even if it might be a little hard for them. And so here's what Paul is saying. I'm going to come alongside you to help you in this situation. That's interesting because Paul obviously is not there. So he's trying to influence them. He's coming alongside them with his words. And so we got to ask, I mean, what does it look like to come alongside someone? I think if we go back to verse 1, sometimes it means standing firm. Paul says, stand firm against my enemies. Every once in a while, we actually have to stand firm against our friends as well. Um, here's what that looks like in my life. Uh, I've ha- I have a couple of, of, of examples, and these stung a little bit. So I, I retired from the Army in 2008, and, um, you know, I, I, uh, I was an Army officer, so um, I, I had a successful military career, and the day I signed out of the Army, I went on staff as a, as a pastor at a megachurch. I was executive pastor, sort of running the ship, and um, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I mean, I went on staff at this church in the same mindset that I was as an army officer. I mean, I was like straight and narrow. Um, I was barking orders. I was like, I, I thought my staff was lazy, kind of pathetic. I thought they didn't do anything. My very first day, this is embarrassing. It's embarrassing now. It was, it's just real. My very first day, I was having one of my very first meetings and I, I was trying to have a decent meeting, and I heard in the hallway some people playing right outside my door. I went outside, opened the door. The youth pastor had a remote control car. Johnny Fletcher had a remote control car, and he's driving that car down the hallway, just having a whole bunch of fun. And, and, and guess what? Half the staff was there watching him. And I was like, I looked at Johnny, I crossed my arms, it's like, dude, I was like, I'm in a meeting. Do you got to do this here? And so that was my beginning. You all don't know. They, they called me names after that. They called me. I was a pastor on staff. They called me Colonel Toomer. And, and that, that wasn't a good thing for a pastor to be called. Um, and it only went down from, downhill from there. I, the, the staff was afraid of me. Why? Because, I, I mean, I didn't make the transition. I transitioned out of the Army, but I was still Colonel Toomer. All right, so fast forward a few months, and uh, I'm, I'm doing a little bit better. And, uh, and so my pastor actually came up to me and, and helped me. He came alongside me by telling me, it's like, Jeff, so we hired you because, you know, we wanted your, your discipline and um, all the things that you've learned in the Army to help sort of orient the staff and, and move us forward. 
but we actually don't want you to be an army officer here. We want you to be a pastor. And this, I, I honestly, I think you're the one to pastor the staff. And those sound like kind words, but actually they went like an arrow in my heart because I didn't even recognize who I was being towards these people. I was just being Jeff. Side note, those of you in the military, you've been in for a few days and a few months, you don't know this, but you're wound pretty tight. Maybe your spouse has told you, you're like, oh, you're like wound real tight. Um, and it takes a long time to unwind someone that's been in the Army 20-plus years. So that was what was, I was, that's what was happening. All right, another incident. I'm, I'm at home, and uh, so I would come home, and, uh, and when I would come home, this is embarrassing as well, so I, I mean, I couldn't even get, hey, how you doing? Hello, kiss my wife, hello, hug the kids, out of my mouth before I'm just like barking orders like, what have y'all been doing all day? Why does the house look so messed up? I mean, what's for dinner? All those kind of things. And so my wife let it go for a little bit. Uh, and then one, she did. And then one day, she, she just stopped me as I was barking out orders. She's like, look, you haven't been here all day. We're a homeschooling family. Plus, we live life here. Like, life happens. And you just happen to be coming home when life is in the midst of happening. And so if you don't have a kind word, don't say anything. Go upstairs, take a shower, change your clothes, pray, do whatever you got to do, but go ahead and give yourself 10 minutes. You take a 10-minute time out <laughs> before you come and interact with us, because we don't want that. So what, what, was, what was my pastor, what was my wife doing? They were coming alongside me. They were, they were trying to help me. They were, they were calling out the best in me with direct conversations uh, because of the way I was acting, because of the way I was behaving. And sometimes leaders need to do that. That's what leaders do. Leaders also are willing to take risks to help people. Sometimes we forget that Paul is actually writing a letter. This, was a, this would have been, it would have been inspired because it came from an apostle, but it's a letter. It's, it's a letter to friends, people that he knew. And so uh, what do you do when you get a letter? I mean, anybody got a letter in the last week or so? Like somebody hand wrote a letter to you and you like read it? Not a soul in this room. Isn't that interesting? So, all right, the example won't work. Anybody get email recently? <laughs> all right, so what happens when you get email? You open up your app, you, op- you know, you, op- you open up your laptop, you read it, right? Most of us, because we're Americans, read our letters in private, not in the first century, right? There, there was no privacy when it came to letters, especially letters uh, meant to go to a church. And so imagine this. This church gets a letter. It's read corporately. Think about the contents. Paul is directly addressing two women and telling the leaders to get involved in it. And you start reading a letter and it's like names, like people's names, people that are there in the congregation, people that you know. It would be like me in the midst of our congregation right now saying, all right, guys, I got a sermon for you today. We're going to be in Philippians. Before we get there, I just got to let you know about something going on in two people's lives. So Bob and Sally, they're up here in the front. You know, y'all know they're leaders. We're going to sit them down because they got marriage problems. And honestly, Sally, you just need to be stop, stop being so aggressive and, and stop throwing things and being so emotional when, when y'all get into it. And, and Bob, honestly, you just need to like check in every once in a while. Just act like you're there. I mean, what, I mean think about the 
the risk of me as a leader calling out two other leaders in the midst of the whole congregation. But think about being on the other end. Say you're just like you're you're list, looking at this happen with Bob and Sally and you're listening and you're one of the leaders in the congregation. Too, it's like, oh, my God, he's calling out names. And I, I knew what was going on in Bob and Sally's life. But my goodness, I can't believe he's telling everybody about it. Who who else's name is he going to call out? That's the kind of thing that's that's happening here. Um, and but but here's the thing. Euodia and Syntyche aren't the only people that Paul calls out. He actually calls out one more person, and we don't actually know this person's name. He calls the person true companion in in verse 3. And um, truth be told, I think true companion is probably the principal leader in the Philippian church. He may be not just the leader, he might be the pastor. I think the letter was oriented toward him because he's the one that Paul is directing to intervene in this conflict. He uses these words, help these women. Help them to do what? Help them to agree. Why? Because Paul's been talking about unity during this whole letter, right? Paul says, he doesn't say this, but this is my my take on it. He says, the witness of your individual witness and the witness of the church has to match the gospel that you profess. And so Paul is all about unity in the church. This word agree here is used 10 times throughout all of Philippians. And so Paul really does want them as a people to agree because the perspective of those who are outside the church depends on it. And here's the thing. This is what I'm getting at. Unity requires risk. It requires us to um, to call some people out. It requires us to do some things that might that might be a little uh, risky. And really, what Paul is calling this guy named True Companion, that, that he calls True Companion to do, is get in the middle of a cat fight, right? So I went to a high school in Durham, North Carolina, and uh, Durham was not a rough city, but it's a lot kinder, nicer, gentler than it is than it, right now than it was when I grew up. It was not uncommon for my high school every once in a while to have a fight break out. Like um, young guys that had art against each other just coming out and actually like duking it out right in the middle of, a, of the hallways, like, like in the school right here. Now, the dude fights were usually just, you know, one guy throws a punch, the other guy throws a punch, and somebody's going to win, right? Or somebody's going to break it up. But the more common fights in my high school were actually the young ladies. And you think that these are just yelling matches? Mm-mm. Not in Durham, North Carolina, Hillside High School. These girls were going for it. They were throwing punches. They were pulling hair. Fortunately, this is, this is the day before weaves. They were pulling hair. They were, they got their claws out, and they're trying to, like, put wounds in each other. Those kinds of fights. And there's something interesting that happens with girl fights versus guy fights, at least in Durham, North Carolina, at Hillside High School. With guys, people will like, oh, get off, get off, let's, let's break this up. With girls, they will stand back and watch it. I, I don't understand that, but that was what was going on in Durham, North Carolina, Hillside High School, where I, I grew up. And we, of course, we don't know if this was the, uh, the incident behind Euodia and Sinteki. I'm just saying this to, to make you interested and make sure you're paying attention. Here's what, here's what we do know. We know, uh, we know that Paul tells true companions to get in the middle and solve their issues. He says, help these women get along, because that's what leaders do. Leaders get involved with people. Proverbs 14.4, where there are no oxen, the mangers clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. This is 
kind of a complex proverb, but if you break it down, it kind of makes sense. Imagine you're a farmer, you've got a lot of land, and you're trying to grow and then harvest some crops. And I mean, you, if you've got a lot of land and you're trying to grow and harvest some crops, you need some workhorses, so to speak, and that's your oxen. And, and so the, the proverb is saying, if, if you don't have any oxen, then you don't have anything to clean up. But if you got a lot of oxen to do the, the, the brunt of the load of work you got to do, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have a lot of poop. It's the same thing with people, isn't it? It's the same thing with people. If you involve yourself with people, your life is going to be more difficult. It's going to have more poop involved, right? More, more, more mess. Not just a little bit, perhaps even a lot. And, but I think that's what leaders do. Um, it looks easy being a leader until it's your turn. We're going to watch football today, some of us. It's easy to be an armchair quarterback until it's your turn to throw the ball. It's easy to be the person standing up teaching everybody like a, like a teacher or professor like some of you in this room until it's your turn to stand up and try to teach an unruly class, isn't it? It's easy to be a parent until you're a parent yourself. Mm-mm-mm. It's easy to be the boss of somebody until you're the one that has to set the vision and the mission and, and, and boss everybody else around. But here's what leaders do. They jump in the middle of messes because they involve themselves with people. Someone once said, you're a leader to the degree you're willing to suffer for people. And that seems like an extreme example to use for people that lead, but I think it's right. A leader is willing to um, deny himself so that, so that the people that he's leading can be first or uh, do whatever they need to do to, to accomplish the mission. A leader... Um, uh, he will come along, some, along someone that's having a difficult time and, and coddle them along until they're able to do whatever they're needing to do that by themselves. And in a sense, a leader does suffer. He suffers on behalf of those that he's leading. That's what a leader does. More importantly, I think this is the, 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 the pinnacle of it here, a leader should make peace. A leader should seek to make peace. And that's what this text is about. Uh, a leader's job, a leader's main job is, uh, at least in terms of conflict, is to bring uh, the conflicting um, people involved in the conflict to reconciliation. And that reconciliation uh, needs to go first to God, but then also to, also to people. Here's one of the most famous verses in the, all the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Say this with me. That is, in Christ, in Christ God was res- reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Obviously, this is talking about our individual vertical reconciliation with God. What happens uh, in the gospel? God comes to us. He makes us aware of our sin, makes you aware that you need a Savior. And he, you know, we learn that God has sent Jesus to um, live a perfect life because we can't, to die on a cross in our place for our sin. And immediately what we gain in terms of the gospel is we gain a vertical reconciliation. But because of that vertical reconciliation, we also are enabled to have a horizontal reconciliation. First with God, but then with other people. Jesus' um, disciples in the gospel came to him and asked him what the essence of Christianity was, and he gives them the great commandment. What does he say? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's, that's, that's vertical reconciliation. And then, but he hasn't stopped there. What does he say next? He says, and to love your neighbor 
as yourself. That's horizontal reconciliation. And Paul is trying to get these leaders not to just visit forgiveness. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll pick and choose. You're like, I'm going to forgive you. I'll forgive you, but I don't like you at all. He wants them not to just visit forgiveness. He wants them to live in it. That means when it's easy, when it's hard, I mean, when it's real, real tough, he wants us to live in forgiveness. And if you're going to be an agent of reconciliation, if you're going to, if you're going to take, um, if you're going to um, lead in helping people get along, definitely if you're going to be a peacemaker and not a troublemaker, you're going to have to develop a robust theology of forgiveness. So in our last few minutes, we're going to talk about forgiveness. Let me do a, a product placement. So this book, if you've never heard of it, seen it, Ken Sandy's Peacemaker is, this is the Christian authorized version for dealing with conflict. Ken Sandy has uh, produced a product that I think every Christian should, lead, uh, should read. Definitely if you're a leader in the church, if you're a leader in any organization whatsoever and call yourself a Christian, this is the book that you need to read. I, I, my, uh, my comments here on forgiveness um, are gleaned from this book. I read it. I had it on my bookshelf probably for five years and then was forced to read it for a seminary class a couple years ago. So thank God my, my professor had me read this. This is gold because it talks to you about all the nuances of, of conflict and what you as a person in conflict or a person that's a leader trying to help other people in conflict get through. Principally, it talks about forgiveness um, and reconciliation. So I recommend that book to you. Uh, let me give you uh, four myths of forgiveness, and then we're going to look at three Greek words. Four myths of forgiveness, and then three Greek words, and then we'll be done. Here's the first myth of forgiveness, that to forgive is to forget. You know, a lot of people think that, uh, think this, I mean, that, that if I forgive someone, I should just forget it. Last week, uh, we recalled Paul's words. He said, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. But I made the comment that Paul is not even talking about forgetting because the Bible says too much about remembering what God has done, uh, remembering the gospel uh, for us to, um, to just dismiss um, the opportunity to remember things. I think even in pain, God doesn't want you to forget. And so when it comes to forgiving and forgetting, that's, that's almost an impossibility. You might be able to forget little things and little ways that people have offended you, but I, would, I, would, I know this personally for myself. If someone has physically abused you, sexually abused you, hurt you, cause pain to you, you don't forget that, right? I mean, you don't forget it. Uh, and so it's trite for us to tell person, someone that, I mean, why don't you just forget it? Now, does it mean that we're not being forgiven, being forgiving if we, if we don't forget something, if, if it's present in our memory? No. Does it mean that we're not forgiving if we actually have a little bit of anger at something that someone did to us that was bad? Absolutely not. To forgive is not to forget. Secondly, to forgive means to completely trust again. So I have a, a friend, it's a pastor friend actually, and this pastor friend of mine was actually physically abused quite a lot when he was a young kid. Um, there's, a, there's a good news story to this. So the guy grows up, his dad eventually becomes a Christian, they reconcile. And so life goes on, 
His dad is a part of his life. This man, this pastor has kids. Um, they're a growing, happy family. The father is involved in their life. The father actually comes to the pastor's church, so all is well. But there's one stipulation, there's one boundary that this pastor friend of mine has implemented in his life. He won't allow his dad, his kid's grandfather, to be with them alone. Why? Because he refused, that's the boundary he set. He's refused to cross over that threshold uh, of, of allowing what happened to him to ever come anywhere near to his kids. And some might challenge that. Well, I mean, have you really forgiven him if you won't let him hang out with the kids? Actually, he does let him hang out with the kids. He won't, but he won't do it unless uh, his wife or him or uh, the, the guy's mother is there with them. And, and I think what this, what this demonstrates is that a lot of times we think that we, we should just open the doors wide in forgiveness uh, if we're truly forgiving. But I think the, the right perspective is that you can forgive someone, but if they've, if they've committed a heinous crime, definitely if they've hurt you, like really hurt you, it doesn't mean that you have to roll out the red carpet for them and, and, and let them completely in to your life. That's, that's not really necessarily true forgiveness. And so this pastor has a relationship with his, with his father, but he's basically said, you know what? Forgiving you doesn't eliminate the consequences of your sin. There's always consequences of our sin. So some of you probably have situations like that, and you might have to do the same thing with some of the relationships that you are in. Here's thirdly, forgiveness is easy. Don't you hate it when someone tells you, like, well, I mean, why don't you just forgive the person? I mean, isn't it just as easy as just saying, I forgive you? But again, that's, that's trivializing the hurt and the pain that someone has gone through. If you really know what it's like to be hurt, to, to be shamed, um, to, to, uh, to go through physical or sexual abuse, then you know those things, um, they last a long time. And for someone to trivialize uh, you getting over the event is to not know what it means to actually be hurt by those things. Um, forgiveness is costly. It, it's so costly that God gave up his own son for our sin. See, the, the, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement says that the, the sin in our lives is so costly to forgive that God penalized his own son, substituted him for us to atone for our sin. And so if God goes through that kind of, that length of, of we call it pain, to forgive us of our sin, it means that when you forgive, you're also, in a sense, bearing, you're, you're experiencing pain. Because why? Because forgiveness is costly. You literally are bearing the burden upon yourself to forgive. And of course, you should then, then put that on Jesus. Here's the last one, last myth. Forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. This is actually partly true. Here's a nuance. Forgiveness is not just a choice. It's a series of choices. It's, it's actually forgiving a person over and over again. And, and, and that brings up the point, you know, forgiveness is always a process. We, we forgive because the Bible tells us that we're supposed to forgive, Matthew 6. But the actual event of, of your heart 
catching up to the profession of, you know, in faith, I'm going to forgive you, but your heart catching up to that, it takes a little bit of time, right? It's almost like whack-a-mole. Y'all know whack-a-mole? Like this, that my, my kids had this game. I think we still have it, like locked up somewhere where all the, the, the toys go when kids don't play with them anymore. And so in whack-a-mole, you got a mole that keeps popping up, and there's four of them, and you're like steadily popping these things down. It's like, and it comes back, it's like, didn't I already knock you down? That's, that's how forgiveness is sometimes, isn't it? So I've so an event happened. I was hurt. I was offended. Words were spoken to me. I was physically, sexually abused. All of that. I've got. I've. I've gotten some. I've gotten some healing, right? I moved past it. But all of a sudden, I'm reading something. A thought pops into my head. I see a picture, or, or the person actually shows up in the flesh right in front of me. And what happens? All those emotions. The pain, the hurt, the bitterness, it rises all the way back up again. And what do we want to do? We want to take that hammer out. We want to whack them all, right? And so we have to make the choice all over again, as freshly as it was the day it happened, to forgive. It's not a choice. It's a series of choices. All right, so let me finish up. I want to give you a little seminary lesson. We're going to look at three Greek words. I'm not trying to be a big head here. I think these there's there's five new there's um, there are five uh, Greek words in the New Testament that convey what the one word forgiveness expresses in the New Testament. And I think looking at these words, three of them, the most popular uh, ones in terms of what I want to talk to you about, uh, are going to be uh, kind of illuminating uh, in a good way to end. So the first one of these words is uh, aphemi, aphemi. You can see the transliteration there uh, in the parenthesis there. That's how you would pronounce it. This is what this word means. It means to send away, to dismiss, to set free, to remit the punishment where the guilty party is dealt with as if he were innocent. Say so, uh, an, an event happens, all right? Someone sins against someone else, and the process of forgiveness has to happen. A person does something wrong, and... And here's what aphemi means. It, it means I'm going to do that, do to that person, I'm going to treat them as if they're actually not wrong. I'm going to forgive them. Second word, charizomai. Charizomai. This has a more active sense. Charizomai means to do a person a favor, to be kind to them, to graciously remit a person's debt, to pardon or forgive them graciously. There's a lot of people that say to forgive, uh, to think forgiveness is when you say, I'm going to forgive and now I don't want anything to do with you at all. That forgiveness is, all right, you hurt me, you need to get out of my life forever. This, this Greek word, charizomai, is actually challenging us that that's not true forgiveness. True forgiveness would be us Yes, I, I, I've been hurt. I'm going to forgive you. And it's not necessarily getting that person out of my life forever, but actually doing the opposite. It's going to the opposite extreme of showing them favor, of, of being kind to them, of, of extending grace to them. You, you recognize this word? Charizomai is the Greek version of the word charis, which means favor or grace in the Bible. So really, the, the suggestion is, and you can see an example here in Ephesians 4.32, someone's done me harm, I'm going to do what Jesus says. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to do, do good to them. Because that's what Jesus says. He says that when we have an enemy, we're to pray for them, we're to bless them and do good to them. 
And that might be a hard thing to do. And of course, you can't do that without the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Third word, apoluo. Apoluo means to loosen, to unbind, to set at liberty. And so this is what a lot of times we do with our with conflict that comes about, whether it's real or imagined. A lot of times we um, conflict happens and we will hold on to it for weeks and for months and for years. 30, 40 years have gone by. I mean, the person is dead. And we, I mean, and we still have ought with them. We've not forgiven them at all. And here's, here's what I think is happening on the inside of us. We build this cage, and the cage isn't in your basement. It's not a real cage. It's, it's you know, it's kind of invisible. It's not in your basement. It's not out back with a shed. It's in your heart. Okay, so that, person that, that person that has offended me in some way, I'm going to put them inside my cage. And every once in a while, I'm going to pull that cage out. It's, it's when you know, that thought comes, or I actually see the person, or I'm reading something, or just whatever it is, the trigger that makes you think about that person, and all those bad feelings come back up. And so I pull the cage out, I look at them, I'm, I'm just like mad as I don't know what at that person, and I'm, it's like a whack-a-mole. I'm going to like beat them, beat them, beat them, beat them, beat them. And then I put the cage back in. And we go week and month and year and year and year like that. And that's, what is that called? That's called living in unforgiveness. Here's what Apoluo says. Apoluo says, let them loose. Apoluo says, don't hold grudges. Don't, don't live in unforgiveness. It says, set those people free. So this is what forgiveness is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to remove the barrier that's between me and you that, that comes down, like from the sky, when there's sin and wrongdoing that happens between us. And so forgiveness, the barrier is removed. The sin is, is, is dismissed because it's been forgiven. I'm not holding on to it. I've released it. People then can draw together in authentic community. Even though we've had this thing that's between us, it's all lifted and we can come together and be in unity again. And, and here's the thing with, with not just what Paul is saying, this is what Jesus says. We're commanded to, um, to forgive as a follower of Jesus. And then as we forgive, we're also commanded to help those who are living in unforgiveness to walk in that way as well. Let me finish up with, with, with this. I mean, why is this important? It's important, obviously, for us, but in, in context, it's important for the life of the church because the church can get off, uh, get off mission faster than anything else with this idea of unforgiveness. Nothing destroys the unity in a church more than unforgiveness and an unwillingness to reconcile. And Paul is recognizing this in Euodia and Syntyche. And, and here's what happens usually in conflict. Say, I mean, our church is divided. We got this side and we got that side. And it will be as if you all are looking at each other. I'm going to look this way. Y'all are going to look this way. And you're not just looking at each other. You're pointing the finger at each other as if you've done something wrong. All the while, what's, what's going on on the outside? The world is looking. The, the world is looking at you. It's like, well, why are they looking at each other? What's going on? You got people who don't know they need to know Jesus that 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 we're the ones that are supposed to be reaching them. We've got poor people who need encouragement. We've got homeless people that need help. We've got single moms that, I mean, just um, need our, our, our love and care. 
And all the while, what are we doing? We're staring at each other uh, in, in, in pity conflict. Paul says we need to do more. We need to do better. And I think the same thing occurs with our friends, with our coworkers, and definitely with our family members. Doesn't it? We, we hold these, we have conflicts. Some of them are real conflicts. And instead of entering into the conflict directly, perhaps with hard conversation, we let it, we let it um, steep, we let it harbor, and we don't let go with it. And that, I mean, I think that's what makes the holiday so challenging for some of us. Um, especially with a transit community like we have in D.C., because most of us live here and our families live elsewhere. And if there's any sense of conflict that you haven't resolved in those settings, then you come together and underneath the foundation of your relationship, there's all this tough stuff that hadn't been, hadn't been dealt with. And, and definitely if there's no love and brotherhood, sisterhood and affirmation in that culture, it's just going to get worse before it gets better, right? And so Paul is encouraging us, hey, don't let 30, 40 years go by without saying, you know, perhaps some challenging words. And so here's, here's my heart for you, for, for us in this. Uh, if it's a friend, if it's a coworker, don't, don't let weeks and months go by with you having, uh, you know, a level of, of unforgiveness in your heart for something that's been done to you without entering into the conflict and trying to bring reconciliation. And definitely, don't, don't do this in your family. Don't let 30 or 40 years go by. Don't let someone go to the grave in your family when all it would have taken for you to do is a little bit of courage to bring up that contentious issue and, 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 and just discuss how you might have been hurt or, or, or felt betrayed. And if you need to, grab somebody by the hand and bring them along with you. I think that's what, that's what God would call us to. Because here's what, uh, here's what unforgiveness does to us. It divides us. It makes us take sides, or worse, uh, it puts you in the middle. And if you're a Christian leader, Paul says, God has called you to more. He's called you to be agents of reconciliation. And so here's my conclusion. And my conclusion is a question. What are you going to do with this? I mean, how, how, what do you do with it? Especially if you are a person that, that doesn't handle conflict well. I, I'll be honest, I don't handle conflict well. I'm not a direct, like, in your face, kind of let's get this over with. I'll let it steep and stew. I'll just ignore it, hoping that, like, the dust covers over it and, and somehow God just warms over my. I, I love you. I don't really love you, but I love you. I mean, that's my personality. But God has called us to something different. God is calling you and me not to fix everything and not to think that we have to fix everybody. But here's the challenge of this text. Firstly, it's be a leader. What do leaders do? They enter into tough situations and they help to bring reconciliation. Paul says God has called us to be agents of reconciliation. Definitely don't be a victim because God is with you. He's given you the Holy Spirit and because we have the Holy Spirit, we can make a difference not only in our own lives with his help, but we can make a difference in the lives of others. You've been called sometimes to, to, to love and to be direct. Will you have the courage to do it? Let's pray. Father, sometimes uh, your word challenges us more than we expect it to, and I, I pray that's been the case today. That is, as we um, consider this idea of two ladies in the church, and really, we don't know what their situation was, and Paul commends them because they had been partakers of the gospel. They had been ones who had, were advancing the kingdom with him. And so this really wasn't a rebuke more than it was a, 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 like snapping of fingers and say, hey, hey, ladies, 
let's get your act together. There's, there's people watching, but more than that, there's things to do. There's, a, there's people to be one to the Lord. There's, there's a kingdom to, that, that we need to grab hold of and, and bring it forward into this present world. And so, Lord, I pray, firstly, that you would make us um, people of reconciliation. Uh, that, that's our charge here that you would use us to mediate and perhaps even teach people that we don't have to live lives of, of unforgiveness, harboring it, letting it stew for weeks and months and days. We can actually enter into conflict and that you, Holy Spirit, will help us to, to resolve those, those, those conflicts. Lord, I pray that we would be good forgivers in this room, that we would model that for other people. I pray that you would help us to take responsibility for some of the dysfunction in the various areas of our life. Just, let, just to, to, to own it, to ask your forgiveness for it, and to ask you to purify us and change us. Lord, I pray that we would not wait for someone else to create a culture of love and affirmation in our homes, in our workplaces, definitely not in our church, that we would be the catalyst to do that. God, would you call out the best in us so that we could call it out in others. I pray particularly for those here, Lord, who, who, who really have been hurt. They've been hurt physically. Hard words have been spoken to them. They remember them like it's yesterday. They've been sexually hurt. Lord, I pray that you would offer your love and your care. Bring along, some, bring along some, someone, a parakaleo, that would um, love them, love them to a point where they can actually uh, enter into that conflict with the person that's offended them and perhaps seek forgiveness. Lord, give us the courage to do this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.